1: and we're live it is
0: wednesday march 23rd 2022 five o'clock p.m we are exactly on time today and we have a, a guest co-host mr luke who is uh uh active and vocal uh. Yeah. Do you have stuff to say? He always has things. It's excellent. You're a great American, Luke. Um, uh, So uh, we are not allowed to have fun anymore. Uh, And for the next 15 or 20 minutes, we are also not allowed to have our guest, uh, Christine Emba, because she has been unavoidably delayed. But we are going to talk about her book anyway because yes. uh gdf has actually read it and, most of uh, it, <laughs> most of it and so we're gonna cover the part that would be just like the author describing the book and uh you know what she did in it um uh and then that way when we get here we won't have to ask those first few questions so gdf what's the
2: book about Um, so it is a way of rethinking our relationship with sex and our way of rethinking our relationship with one another Um, it it challenges a lot of our current preconceptions that we have about our social norms first being about sex so there's four major assumptions I think that she covers in here that men and women are the same regarding sex that sex is just a purely physical act that the absence of rules will make us happier in our sexual relationships, and that my sex life is nobody's business. Now, these four preconceptions also are co- like coinc um, accompanied. That's the word I'm looking for. By <laughs> the a really interesting discussion about society and how we have kind of used um, consent as this catch-all phrase, and how consent might not be enough, and why having just Consent as our barrier really puts a limit on our interactions with one another and also our ability to truly enjoy sex as an experience, as a topic, and limit how we consider it. Um,
0: all right. Then, so uh, you've read you you've read most of it, but not all of it. Is that right? Not all of it. Yes. And and do you uh, by and large are you? Oh, Christine is now here. Um,
2: Yay! And Christine, please correct me if I have misrepresented. Well, we have no idea
0: how much of what you just said, Christine, uh, heard. Um, but uh, um, but while she is uh, uh, popping up on screen, um, uh, and there she is. Hello, Christine Emba.
3: Hi everyone. Sorry, I'm late. I'm still on deadline. Well,
0: we appreciate your joining us. Congratulations on the book. And you look like you are joining us from the Washington Post newsroom.
3: I am, yeah. We are back in the office. So I am back in a little meeting room. (laughs) That is extremely
0: exciting. This is, I think, the first time we've had so many people from the Post on. And I think this is the first time anyone has actually joined us from the Post, which uh, may be an indication that we are allowed to have fun again
3: i mean you guys both look like you're having more fun than i am frankly like that is (laughs) a hammock that you're in it It looks like i'm wearing a sloth shirt which is not
0: to say i've had a slothful day
3: that's Uh, that's fair
0: so congratulations on the book it is i assume out yesterday is that is that right
3: Yesterday was pub day. So now it's out wherever books are sold or listened to. And I read the audio book, which is fun. (laughs) I really enjoyed it.
0: So why did you want to provoke people by rethinking sex? Well,
3: big question.
0: I mean, it's a it's a a question uh, provoked, one might say, by the title.
3: Yes. Well, so I actually started, I didn't, I didn't set out to write a book about sex, actually. Um, so I'm a columnist at The Post, and I have always written about sort of questions of culture, ethics, and society, and sort of how I create norms. And during the Me Too moment, I was writing a lot about these cases, like Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer, et cetera. Et cetera. Um, and to me, it seemed like those cases brought up and made clear the fact that, you know, the problems we thought we had solved um, about, like, through the sexual revolution, the feminist movement had not really gone away. And then there were, like, kind of more complicated stories, um, like Cat Person or the Aziz Ansari thing or the Medium Endless list that made it even more clear that even the rules that we had set up that worked in some situations, like we know Harvey Weinstein was bad because he didn't get consent, even those rules didn't necessarily fix sort of these gray areas, they didn't really apply. So also in those stories, and the fact that so many women especially seem to really relate to them, these situations of bad sex of like, well you know i consented to it but it was awful or like oh like somebody does something to me that i don't want but like don't really say no and that's extremely normal for me that's just what sex is like now i was kind of like what is this what's happening here like what is this malaise that's going on in our sexual culture and so i wanted to ask questions and sort of try and figure out just what what why the vibes were so off as they say like were there assumptions that we had made about sex that were not holding up um what was it about consent that didn't quite seem to be getting the job done the job we had hoped it would do fixing sex um you know after the sexual revolution and you know as the feminist movements continued like where did we think we were going to end up and where have we ended up and how did we end up with this delta in between them? Um, So it sort of expanded from there. And then of course, you know, I started writing these columns and then started the book project and it was kind of an academic project at first, but it quickly became very personal um, because sex is very personal. And I ended up, you know, sort of rethinking my own kind of experiences and as I talk to women and men like in different cities across America, just trying to figure out what we had in common and what we really wanted from sex.
0: And what is, uh, uh, broadly speaking, your conclusion? Uh, I mean, everything you've posed so far is a question. Um, uh, I assume that in posing these questions, you actually propose some some at least tentative answers to them. What, uh, what, what conclusions should we come to if we rethink sex?
3: Well, so a big one that I came to and that Gabrielle was talking about as I entered the room um, was that we need to rethink our dependence on consent as the only possible ethical standard that we can apply, uh, to sex. Oh my gosh. So cute. Uh,
0: (laughs) That's Luke.
3: Wow. I thought Luke was holding a microphone for a second. I was like, give him, let him speak. He has, no Luke
0: Luke, Luke sometimes has a lot to say during the show, but it's usually not words. Um, it's, it's just vocalizations and we, we, uh, we're pro that.
3: Yeah. I do consent to that. Um, But yeah, the idea of consent as sort of the only standard that we can, through which we can judge whether sex is right or wrong, um, seems clearly lacking to me. You know, consent is a floor. It's a great, you know, sort of legal baseline to make sure that what you're doing is not actively felonious. Uh, but it shouldn't be a ceiling. You know, we should be asking right. not felonious more questions. is not
0: is not the relevant standard in most <laughs> in most interactions.
2: Right. And do we really want our legal standards to be our standards all the time?
3: Exactly. Like that's not what relationships look like, I think. And a kind of a real relationship is what a lot of people want from their sexual encounters. And so uh, a semi-solution that I propose to this is trying to institute or consider a new ethic for sex, um, which I define as willing the good of the other, um, which is Aristotle by way of Thomas Aquinas, and it was actually his definition of love in a way. Um, and it means sort of willing the other person's good in an encounter, um, actively working so that you know their experience Is as much of a priority as yours. Um, And then it also means, you know, it also implies a responsibility for trying to figure out what the good is, Um, really being honest about what we think sex means and what we want from sex and from each other so that we can then create that good for the other person.
2: Now, quickly, when you were having all these interviews, did you find that a lot of people struggled with understanding what their own desires actually were, or was there just a reticence to vocalize
3: those desires? So, great question, actually. And I will say, <laughs> you know, one of the um, one of the interesting things about writing this book or beginning to write this book is, as soon as you if you're a journalist or anyone, like once I would mention that I was writing a book about sex or even thinking about the question, people will just come and tell me like all sorts of things, like their sexual stories, like ask me for advice (laughs) Um, because I think a lot of people don't have a space and actually men did this especially, didn't really have a space to talk about these questions. Like didn't know who to talk about them with or turn them over with. And then in interviews, I would often sort of ask people about their experiences and then ask them, you know, okay, so you said this, what makes you say that? Or like, why do you think that this is the case? And they would pause and be like, you know, I don't know. (laughs) I guess I've never really thought about why I believe that, you know, it would be healing to have like tons of casual sex or why I think that I shouldn't feel emotion during sex or there was like one um, specific interview that a woman we were talking about dating apps and uh, a woman told me jokingly you know I ordered a guy off of tinder and I was like that's interesting (laughs) and a few moments later she was like I don't I don't know why I said that (laughs) maybe that's not good? Actually, (laughs) maybe it's it's true. And and, and do you have a
0: a sense that this is generationally delineated or age delineated? um, That there's some in your interviews that there's some age ceiling above which the vocabulary is completely different, the expectations are different? Or is there Uh, a a kind of, I mean, the sexual revolution was a while ago and uh, have basically attitudes been more or less what they are now. I mean, when you talk to people who are 30 and 60, do they sound more alike or do they sound more different?
3: Uh, They sound pretty different actually. Um, So I'll caveat by saying that I did speak to more young people. Um, But I think that some of the pressures have actually changed. So in the book I think I talk to people about, you know, the effect of dating apps on their relationships, the effects of pornography on their relationships, um, and how the context shifts kind of change what they feel like they're allowed to want and what they desire. Um, And also the definition of what You know sort of freedom and liberation and even feminism is has changed over time and that's one of the things i write about i mean you know the original sort of feminists of the second wave right uh talked about the sexual revolution and talked about sex positivity but it had a specific meaning um for many of them you know it meant that women should be seen as equivalent To men, that their desires should be taken into account, that they were as important as men. Um, And I think over time, in some ways, that has been perverted via various uh, forces. And for like millennials and Gen Z, you know, the feminism that we've experienced is not this kind of utopian vision of equality, but this like girl boss feminism where the goal is actually, you know, not for sort of a peaceful utopia where we embrace love and equality, but one in which women are now finally free to be as brutal as the most careless man. And like, that is what success, it looks like we're told.
2: Um, And then I think- Oh, please. Oh yeah, jump in. uh, I just wanted to ask you if from your, conversations did you feel a little bit like feminism had almost failed men in some way for like giving them like giving them an absence of a space to experience the softer side of a relationship in safety I I mean I kept thinking that when I was like reading the book and I just would love to hear your perspective on that not that we're responsible for men but you you know what I mean by that question yeah (laughs) yeah
3: that's that's a really good angle You know, again, I think that the original, like there's a quote from Jermaine Greer in the book where it talks about how the goal of feminism is to allow both men and women to be freer, more loving beings together. Um, And that's like not where we've ended up. It seems like instead of, you know, achieving a better baseline of equality for both, just perhaps because men still have more power and influence in society, like that is the case. Um, it was more the case that women drifted over to being more like what men stereotypically were and men just kind of stayed <laughs> where they were and were not really invited um, to that sort of more loving center in, in the same way. And I think, yeah, I mean, I think for both sexes also a, the sort of, continued and increasing embrace of an almost a liberal individualism means that became even more even more acceptable or pursued for people to not be emotionally connected um not you know expressing their feelings not showing care not showing emotionality um being chill i guess (laughs) uh, is the new cool for both men and women so men didn't really get to take advantage of these changes in the way that one might have hoped. And
0: how does consent play into that? Like to the extent that the a running theme throughout this is the inadequacy of consent as a standard um, or the inadequacy of applying the criminal standard to general ethics and life. Um, uh, Why, what's the relationship between, between those pathologies that you've just described, and a kind of baseline consent standard as what everybody's looking for
3: compliance with? Yeah. So, I mean, to be clear, consent is important, and non-negotiable, and it honestly took us long enough to get even to the place where consent is the baseline. Um, so <laughs> consent is a good thing. Um, but I think that one of the things about consent is, as we said, again and again, it is a legal requirement. It's a, it's a contracts uh, methodology in some sense, and it sets, it kind of assumes that the two people who are consenting are necessarily like in opposition to each other, right? Like one person is trying to get something from someone else and the other person is agreeing to it or has to agree. Um, and, oh man, I see the, can I, can I say curse words? The zipless fuck. I actually have a section on that in the book. Um, but you know, there people are set against each other. And so it's not, collaborative in a way. Like consent does not necessarily um, induce you to think about the other person's feeling and you know work in concordance with them. It assumes that like someone is out to get the sex and the other person has to either give it- right. Give it or, up. Yeah, give it up or not give it up, which is not really conducive to relationship and mutual care.
0: Okay, so the skeptic though would say Christine, all that is very nice for the people who want to do this. And, you know, you know, the sexual revolution was, you know, was never about so that square people can't have normal relationships. It was always about so that unsquare people could be liberated from all that bullshit if they wanted to. And so, yeah, no one's telling you not to demand uh, 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 that people not be assholes as well as get consent. Um, no one's saying uh, you can't demand more, um, uh, but you know you shouldn't also tell people that they have to demand more. Um, I so what's uh, the what's wrong with the sort of pure libertarian response hey if it's not working for you you know uh that's fine but you know a lot of people just you know uh a lot of women just want to be girl bosses and uh and you know uh and the hookup culture works just fine for them
3: (laughs) that is a pushback that i get and i think that My pushback to that actually is rooted in the experiences um, of, you know, the people I've talked to, the women I've interviewed, what statistics show um, about the falling levels of connection, Um, you know, we're at a 30 year low for sexual activity for partnerships for marriage and yet most people when you speak to them say that that's what they really want they actually want a connection with people they want to be cared for they want empathy and they they don't want that loneliness and i think that the the sexual revolution has liberated people and i'm not trying to go you know back from that i think a lot of good has happened but i think it's still worth considering you know Also new pathologies have cropped up and new problems arise and many people are still dissatisfied. So, you know, what is going on with them and how can we help them?
2: A lot of the book, you analyze a lot of our current situation and you, you do use like the lens of um, capitalism. And I thought that that was such an apt description of the situation right now, and also one of the, but I've split my brain. I want to go two different directions at the same time.
0: Do both, Um, just do them in order.
2: (laughs) Oh, it's hard though. (laughs) Um, So how much do you feel, especially with the advent of dating apps, that uh, capitalism is being reinforced within our interpersonal relationships? Do you think that that's a powering force or is it just something that we're not examining enough? Um, well, what do you mean by a power force? Meaning that that's essentially that it's driving our, it's, it's the driver that we're completely unaware of how much our own consumerism and our attitudes towards each other have been co-opted by our understanding of what is good in terms of materialism.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, really good question. Um, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, You know, as you asked earlier, like, I think a lot of our desires have remained unexamined. And so it's very easy for certain things to creep in, whether it's through sort of, you know, cultural products or media influence or just sort of the changing times without us almost noticing. Um, So, for example, that Tinder example that I gave you, um, if you think about it, like Tinder, the app, and the way that many of these dating apps are set up now, uh, teach us to commoditize each other. I mean, they're set up, they're supposed to look like kind of a deck of cards where you're just like swiping through people and people are interchangeable. There's always someone coming up next. And that inevitably like does lead us to think of people in commoditized terms, as that woman said, like I ordered a guy off Tinder, just like one person <laughs> among many. Um, and we may not realize we're doing that, but like, these things do shape the way that we think, you know, even when we talk about like being, sorry, I guess we are going to curse on this a little bit. Like, Oh yeah. Feel free. Being fucked or getting fucked. Like that is, you know, the way that we talk about and think through these things also shapes how we, how we feel in a way. And I think there are also larger forces. I talk about how um, sort of the idea, the ideal of the zipless fuck as like the optimal sex experience, Uh, the optimal sex experience being the one where you and the person don't know each other, don't care about each other, never see each other again and don't have feelings. And that's great because it frees us up to be like the most individual atomized person possible. I mean, The reason why I think capitalism likes automized individuals is because then they just devote all of their attentions to work and the market Um, and they aren't interrupted by things like dependency or care or emotions or connections to other things.
0: So I um, am interested in the politics of this project. Your people associate you with the left. Um, uh, This project is evidently influenced by Catholic social theory. Is that fair?
3: It is. Yeah. It's, it's influenced by Catholic
0: social teaching for sure. And, and it has a, um, it has a, a, I would say a, a not politically conservative bent, but a a, a a more, hey, wait a minute, do you really wanna divorce sex from feelings? Do you really wanna pretend that the expectations of women and men are not in fact at least a little bit different? Um, and so I'm interested in the complicated politics of 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 the project and also what the political response to it has, I mean, it's been a day, but what what the uh, what what the what the response from the feminist left has been, and also from the from the uh, from from that part of the right that is engaged with these questions.
3: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it is only the second day. So I have to say that I'm not uh, 100% sure what the response is yet, but I know that, and this was actually a surprise to me. I didn't know that this was happening, Um, but Michelle Goldberg wrote a column uh, about my book that came out uh, yesterday when the book dropped and uh, someone can drop it in the chat. Um, Otherwise I will just totally lose my train of thought. and she seemed very confused by where I was. She was like, "Christina Amba is a heterodox thinker. It's kind of hard to pin down where she's coming from," which I took as a compliment. Um, but I think that a lot of a lot of readers maybe will have that reaction, <laughs> uh, and I don't actually think that that's a problem because, really, I I'm not trying to come at this as a political project in sort of the traditional way that we've said this, like this isn't about being a Democrat or Republican or even the left or the right, but in, you know, trying to speak to people's lived experiences and help them to sort of seek the common good together. I will say that um, on the right, actually, (laughs) um, I think I will probably catch a little bit of flack for not being totally prescriptive, frankly, you know, I'm not, I'm not in the book saying like, we need to ban pornography and everybody should not have sex until marriage. Because like, Mm -hmm. I think that train has kind of left the station (laughs) at this point. Um, But then, you know, on the left, I think I'm going to catch a little flack, you know, for being like, maybe it is okay sometimes to have judgments, um, to kind of, insert moral questions and ethical questions into the public square. And yes, talk about whether things are right or wrong and whether some ways of moving through the world can be healthier or better than others. But I mean, that's why it's a provocation, you know? Right. I'm trying to provoke that conversation because like, how else are we going to move forward to any kind of solution or new stage? Go ahead, My GDF. Think is-
2: my kink is having a little bit of moral judgment. So <laughs> no one can tell me that's wrong.
3: My kink is having opinions and that's what I Yes, stuck Exactly.
2: exactly. <laughs> um, but just quickly on pornography, I thought you did a very interesting job of discussing the relationship with millennials and those generations that came after have had with pornography and how that's actually shaped individual relationships with sex and how we conceptualize our interpersonal intimate relations because of pornography. And I, I I, had a quick question about the gentleman that you had an anecdote in the story about who had the dream about his computer. Did he get, did did his, once he stopped viewing porn, oh, for the audience, very quickly, if, I hope you don't mind.
3: Oh, but
2: yeah. The, the, there's a guy who Christine uh, interviewed, and he was saying that when he discovered that He had a problem with porn and how that was shaping his relationships was that he had a dream, a fancy dream, a a sexy time (laughs) dream about his computer laptop opening. And that was what was starting to stimulate him and he could not have the same stimulation with someone that he had feelings for who was in bed with him as a real person. And so I had a question that I really wanted resolved was, so he stopped watching porn. I
0: just just want to point out – that it would be very hard to get any work done <laughs> if I was stimulated by my laptop opening. Like, yeah. that's just like a
3: I'm, terrifying thought. I feel like it was like a Pavlov. he described it as like kind of having a Pavlovian response almost. Like the laptop is just like where he goes to watch porn and so it's, yeah, mm-hmm. it seemed bad. I me, mean, but he, <laughs> he, he was he happy about it.
2: Did he say after w- stopping watching porn, did it get better?
3: Like that was what I kept wanting to know. Yeah, I mean, that was the implication. I mean, he, he said he stopped a couple, I don't remember the exact year and I don't have the book to grab right now. I believe he it was, was like, 2018. And I yeah, and he was like, and I haven't gone back since. Um, and I believe now he has a girlfriend, <laughs> um, if I recall correctly from our conversation. And I think like, it was an active decision that like, he wanted to do something different with his life. And he like, was at this point, clearly able to identify what the problem was and do something about it. And I mean, I, it's funny in talking to men like more, <laughs> I in talking to women, um, porn came up, especially because they're, so many women mentioned feeling an increase in guys asking them to do things that were maybe not seen as normal or normalized in the past. Choking came up a lot. um, And there's an anecdote in the book about that. Um, Just because
0: they had seen it because they. Yeah.
3: And they were like, clearly these guys are all like trying to test out something they've seen in porn where it's just like choking and like, 15 different positions and then they think I like it. And I, it's actually, I don't like it. Um, and so many men were like, yeah, porn. I mean, it's kind of, one person told me it's kind of like Twitter, like I'm I'm on it all the time. And if somebody took it away from me, I'd be like so happy, but I can't. So I
0: I think this is one of the biggest generational like shifts among men that, so I'm 52 and there is not a single person and I challenge anybody in the Greek chorus uh, who is 45 or above to tell me this does not describe your experience. That every male of my generation has a a, a acute memory of the, experience of being 13 or 14 and wanting to acquire porn Um, which of course was something uh, uh, quite anodyne compared to what is pervasive on the you know um, and this was something you actually had to go to a newsstand and look somebody in the eye and say hi can I have a you know, which was essentially announcing, "Hi, I am going to masturbate this evening. Um, would you please assist me by selling me a visual aid?" And the, um, uh, you know, the, um, the, the, the shame associated with doing that, the inhibition associated with doing that which of course shows up very famously in the Woody Allen movie Bananas where he there's a whole scene where he's buying porn at the newsstand um and um it's a like this is a much more indelible memory the inhibition associated with conf- being, with confronting somebody at, is a greater memory to me by like a factor of 50 or 100 than any porn i experienced as a you know as a teenager um and now i mean i think the availability of it with no questions to anybody is is a it's a profound cultural difference um and so why would you you know and and i think the decline in sex, the decline in relationships is what, you know people, you know, kids are have access to this in the same way they have access to video games. It, it, it doesn't, you don't have to negotiate it through a relationship. You don't have to think about another person in it. And it, it's it's so easy. Um and it doesn't require that you sort of take responsibility for anything even to the guy who runs a newsstand which is like a low level of you know um but i think it's a i think it's a real like when, when i talk to people below the age of sort of 35 who did not have this experience like it's actually a gulf between you know, it's a, it's a generational experience that we had that nobody ever will have again.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, the, the chapter that, yeah, we talked about before I stepped on about, you know, our sex lives not being private and about privacy was a little bit about this. Um One of the things, one of the One of the assumptions that I think we have taken in about sex that has become culturally pervasive that I'm not sure is good is that it's actually so much better for everything to be totally private and unaccountable. Like actually the best world is one in which you don't have to be connected to anyone and you don't have to explain yourself and you don't have to be, you know, no one's checking up on you. Um, And I actually kind of use dating apps to talk about this because, you know, in the past, um, theoretically, I mean, not theoretically, in the past, people mostly met their partners through friends or family or church or like some sort of community that they were embedded in. And so in some ways that, you know, kind of sucked because everyone was always in your business. Um, But in other ways, it was kind of helpful because if you met someone, they knew that other people knew um and so there was some accountability that said okay i'm not going to be terrible to this person say because like my mom's gonna find out or my friends will find out um and with the advent of dating apps you know there have been great great things about dating apps like uh people of you know previously marginalized orientations or ethnicities like find it way easier to date. People, interracial dating has risen. Um, People are able to date outside of their communities and geographical areas, that's great. Um, But then there are also downsides like you're dating and you're swiping and like, you don't know this guy, that guy doesn't know you as they see on the internet or as they say rather on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog on a dating app. You could be lying about everything and nobody knows and you can't be called out on it you can send somebody like a picture of your genitals and like that's nobody's going to call you out you don't you can ghost on someone and there's no for those of
0: of you you who have not seen the tinder swindler
3: uh, (laughs) oh my gosh yeah
0: you really need to it is run don't oh oh, it's (laughs) i mean it's a fabulous just if you like con artist stories it's an incredible one but in terms of just how much you can be lying about on, like, on Tinder, it's amazing.
3: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think that while in some ways the the lessening of um, sort of social forming on some of these relationships has freed up people actually to pursue their true desires and be their true selves. Um, The lack of accountability, um, and thus the lack of being able to, there's no recourse, there's no one to turn to if things go wrong or get weird, there's no real space to ask for correction from anywhere. And in some ways, you know, we do live in a society, and all societies, you know, are held together in some ways by certain forms of Social regulation and interaction. And I think when that disappears, often you can end up with some strange phenomena. Um, and this is one of them.
0: Let's go to the audience. We have a lot of good questions. Richard Wattenbarger, the floor is yours.
4: Hello. Um, congratulations on the book. Um, Thank you. I, uh, so I, I guess I'm asking this question, uh, taking you to be someone who reads the culture and um, so much so many of our norms about sex, uh, we um, are reinforced and we uh, from by the entertainment industry. And I'm wondering, um, so what can we learn about? Um, what can we learn about the relationship? of What do you think we can learn about the relationship of American culture to sex? from the entertainment industry and in particular about how we joke about sex you know that was something that was kind of you know uh, almost taboo when i was a kid uh, and of course that's changed a lot and i'm wondering if these lessons that we could get are helpful or unhelpful or neither
3: so really good question um yeah i mean i think so much of so much of how we understand sex especially because we don't have a great system of sex ed in this country, <laughs> um, tends to be just informed by media, by mass culture. And I think one of the, we have, we're, we've become a little bit schizophrenic about sex in in the way that it's described in or the way that it's portrayed in mass culture. Like on the one hand, um, you have so many shows about like romantic and sexual peaks basically. And we're almost given to assume that like having sex is like the one thing that makes you an adult and is like the fulfilling thing in your life. And it's how we shape our identities. It's like the highest good you can have. And then on the other hand, we see sex everywhere. on billboards on shows like you know (laughs) sex in the city movie number 75 where like the whole point of it seems to be just like having sex with as many random people and getting as many experiences as you want you know sex doesn't mean anything we have it to be cool and that's all um and both of those i think kind of give us a false understanding of what sex is and how we might feel about it and how we should relate to it. And even if we desire something different, something perhaps more real, if there's no depiction of it in, you know, mass culture where we get our messages, we can feel like we're the weird ones. And what we need to do is be more like these depictions in either direction.
0: All right, Paula, you seem to be a green rectangle again, um, but. Uh, You're an Um, audible green rectangle and the floor is yours.
2: Um, I'm in an undisclosed location. Um, But so I was wondering if you think that the kind of like Hollywood version of sex kind of gives us like the superficial feeling that we are talking about sex but we're really not we I feel like you always hear people say like we're talking about sex more than ever and like my thought is just because you saw a lot of sex on HBO doesn't mean we're like that's not the same thing as about as having a real conversation about it do you think those things get like conflated which is like seeing a lot of nudity versus actually having a conversation
3: oh absolutely I mean <laughs> watching sex does not equal talking about sex. Like they're literally different activities (laughs) Um, in the same way that, you know, watching pornography doesn't teach you how to have good sex. You're watching something that's created on a screen for entertainment. The angles are not there because they like accurately depict sex. It's because like, this is what um, films well. And I think sometimes, you know, It's almost used as an easy way out of having kind of tough conversations about what we want sex to look like, what sex means to us as a society, because you can just be like, oh, no, just like watch, watch the movie. It's we've got sex covered.
0: Um, So what's the tough question? I mean, what's the tough conversation that society is watching porn and and watching rom-coms instead of having?
3: So, like, I, like, if
0: you could force like a focus group of fifty um, people within five years in any direction of your own age, there's Matteo um, uh, to have a conversation about X subject. Um, what's the one you would want nobody to be able to go out into life without actually having to have the conversation about?
3: So that's a really interesting question. Um, I think, first of all, we would need to have a conversation about just what sex is, um, what it's for and what it means to us as a society and as individuals. Um, and we'd also have to kind of think about what uh, what levels on which we want to understand this. Um, You know, again, they're like all these competing definitions. Sex means nothing. Sex means everything. We shouldn't freight sex with emotion. We shouldn't expect sex to connect us. Or should we actually assume that for most people, sex maybe has an emotional component and, you know, we should be aware of that when we're having it. And again, like this is going back to the question of consent. Like it's kind of these trickier gray area questions that did you say yes or not is not sufficient to answer and if we're only having conversations about consent we're skipping over those questions there's another um chapter in the book that's entitled some desires are better than or worse than others rather and i have heard that i may get some flack for this chapter too but it's basically about how again under sort of a consent as the only standard regime the only way that we judge whether a sexual encounter or even a sexual practice or act or preference is okay or not okay is, you know, to say, well, they consented to it. And once consent happens and like, we can't talk about anything else. We can't talk about anything beyond that. A sort of a curtain is drawn because whatever happens between two consenting adults is fine because they consented. And, you know, actually as a society, I wonder if it, we need to have the conversation about, you know, are certain preferences good for us? Are, I mean, and I think for individuals, context matters so much and we have to be aware of how sort of policing desire has been used to stigmatize people and marginalize groups over time. Um, but I mean, I'm I'm seeing so many situations like these days i was just reading um an article in the atlantic about marilyn manson and evan rachel wood um you know about how manson basically got off on sort of horrifically abusing this woman like whipping her scarring her et cetera et cetera and her his defense is this was an intimate consensual relationship so are you saying that, we're not allowed to disapprove of that? Well, I mean that. Well, that's <laughs> well, the thing. I I'm that, in your
0: voice now.
3: <laughs> yeah. No. Exactly. I'm like. So can we? I think that maybe we should be able to say that. In fact, scarring, generally, it's not bad. Good, like a desire to want to degrade and maim your partner is actually not. A good desire. You're a radical conservative. Yeah, I, um, I know. Maybe, I know, maybe you should go to therapy instead. Yeah, Cancel me now. But I mean, so, I think that we have to be able to have conversations about what is good for. Okay, our, so I um, want to. I, I want to
0: get down to brass tacks about this before we go to our last three questions, because I totally agree with you, but I actually have trouble imagining what the modality of this is. So imagine now we're on a college campus and um, person A accuses person B of mistreating her or sexual misconduct in some regard. And person B says, no, but you were consenting. And person A concedes this point, but says, no, but it was bad anyway um so i'm trying to imagine the modality by which we have this conversation that is it we're saying uh okay it's out of the realm of the adjudicatable not merely criminal but you're not you're not going to get thrown out of college but you know if somebody says hey he was really into maiming me and you know i consented but that was uh you know that was a you know bad judgment on my part, but you know, like we should take that pretty seriously um uh, wh- what's what's the modality by which you imagine this conversation takes place?
3: yeah, that's a hard one. I mean, I think my ideal when I think about having this conversation and the reason why you know I wrote this in a book for sort of the everyday reader like something that could be read by young people by parents um could be discussed in i mean some places in public um and not tried to pass this as like a piece of legislation or a piece of policy is that i think that these are our social questions um and they're questions that we need to bring up in conversation with each other in society and but we also have to be open to empathy, understand ourselves to be corrigible. I don't think that these are problems that you can just put into the hands of like the carceral state or like 10 Title IX administrators to solve. You know, we try to do that with consent and even with like a supposedly bright line of consent, it doesn't work. I think the way that you know we create social change is to have interpersonal and honest conversations with each other in these social spaces, establish frankly norms um, and a set of standards that are maybe not enforceable by you know the police. I think we've seen what happens when <laughs> the legal system gets involved in sex, um, but that we we hold each other to higher standards. We hold each other accountable in our communities, in our own relationships. And because we have discussed these norms out loud and say these things in public places, there's more, there are more resources, more community standards that we can sort of turn to as recourse and say, you know, like as a society, you know, other people understand this to be true too. Like, I'm not the only person who thinks this this is so. Um, And I think that's where the discussion can begin. And from there, I think as we reach social consensus in some ways, that's when it can maybe flow up into other things. But yeah, I think the place to start is with each other.
0: Itamar, the floor is yours.
4: All right, so I guess, my my question kind of really follows along what ben was just asking is like what are the implications of this moral framework so i guess we don't want to get the law involved which i'm very sympathetic to but like should you be asking your rabbi if sex is right for you like do we (laughs) should we shun people who uh don't have the giving desire i mean i'm i guess like what uh like not having read the book, what I'm very uh, in favor of is just people having more frank conversations. And I think that's kind of a very similar idea that what you're getting at. But I I guess, is there like something more to that? And before I get kicked off, I also have a follow-up unrelated question. Are you a fan of Haruki Murakami?
3: I am. Sorry, that was the easier question, so I took it yeah. <laughs> Um Yeah, no, that's a that's a good and I think difficult question. I mean, when I think about the the sort of new ethic that I'm proposing, willing the good of the other, um, you know, it involves prioritizing the others you know, needs, desires, and encounter, as much as you prioritize yours, it also involves a responsibility to kind of find out what the good is for yourself and for that other person. And so in some ways, it, it's really an argument for restraint in some ways. Like if you don't know enough about this other person to be able to prioritize your, their good, if you're not in a space yourself where you know that you can do that, then maybe the thing to do is pause. <laughs> um, and I think kind of reclaiming the pause, like as the, as the Stoics said, um, you know, if you're invited to pleasure, pause. Um, and I think that's actually just a useful starting point for a lot of people, frankly, to stop and think about what they are doing, what they want from sex. And on some level, you know, I think that that may lead to a lot less casual sex. And that is actually something Again, cancel me here, but I think I'm okay with that um, if it is actually helping people, you know, not enter into these uh, encounters that they find traumatic, depressing, and and sad.
0: Alice, you are a disembodied voice
5: from Vienna, and yet the floor is yours. I actually I don't mind being my uh, face as well because they put on more than just pajamas um i wish so i was wearing pajamas i was coping to kind of <laughs> uh, it's several hours later but not as many as usual because our daylight savings kind of don't line up um anyway so my question is and i was kind of hoping to coast on mateo's question because you've answered the ones i put in earlier um I saw at one porticles saying that people who had one sexual partner in their life had much higher marriage satisfaction. Um, And then that sort of dropped off from there based on how many sexual partners you've had. Um, And my question is, do those people have the same expectations for marriage or is the fact that you, you know, say waited for marriage mean that you probably have like a kind of entire different definition that maybe isn't as hard to meet as this kind of more modern definition, or do you think, that it really is tied to something less that they that these people are using like the same definition, but they're not, but that, but this like more sexual partners has a different kind of impact. And I'm so let's, since here.
0: we've got Mateo right here and we don't know how much longer we'll have him, <laughs> let's have him attach his uh, 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 question to this as well.
1: Sure. Um, my question very simply is what the relationship between, um how you're thinking about how society thinks about sex uh the relationship between that and how society thinks about marriage and the for a little bit of context i've i'm uh 21 and i've recently been having some conversations with people my age uh, about how they anticipate spending the next 10 years and it falls into one of two buckets and people are honestly ambivalent about which one they want to go into which is get married sooner than later like in the next three four years or uh, just have a, a casual 20s and then get serious about finding a, a marriage partner later and i'm curious if in your research you've Identified changes in the ways that people are thinking about marriage and how that relates to um, how people think about sex?
3: Good question. So, to both of those, I think I should first caveat that I am not a sex researcher or in a scientific sense. So, I interviewed a number of them for the book. Um, so, I can, you know, kind of only speculate on some of the cause and effect here. Um, Yeah, the research about um, satisfaction when it comes to sex and marriage and the relationship between partners and marriage, it's true. It does seem that like for both women and men, um, it like differs slightly, but after a certain number of partners, it's actually pretty low. There tends to be a drop-off in reported sexual satisfaction. Um, And it's not 100% clear why that is to me i think there are a lot of competing theories and we don't really know the answer um but one thing that i hear a a number of people talk about especially men uh is a sort of paradox of choice (laughs) um satisficer versus maximizer thing that comes into play especially in this time of almost commodified dating if the expectation is that you could be sleeping with anyone you want you have all these choices in front of you then settling on one person and deciding to keep doing that feels like a comedown in a way and maybe leads to like more sort of, I wonder like FOMO um, later on. So that could be a part of it. Um, And I think, you know, sometimes also people accumulate baggage um, as they continue dating, uh, sleeping with people and getting hurt and perhaps bring that into relationships and that might have something to do with it. Um, And then again, I think people who choose to, you know, save sex for marriage um, or really marriage oriented also just might bring a certain, like a different mindset to marriage and find it particularly fulfilling. So that might have something to do with it, but there are a lot of, you know, it's, it's hard to answer. I think there are a lot of different possible answers and I'm not sure which one it is. yeah, and somebody, as to further, to answer, I guess, Mateo's half of the question, someone in the comments mentioned the sort of keystone versus cornerstone theories of marriage, and I think that's kind of exactly the dichotomy you're talking about, um, whether you're going to view marriage as the cornerstone, like, something that you start, like, that you do early and then you build your life from there, or the keystone, you, like, build your life and then marriage is, like, sort of the the final step, the cherry on top. Um, And, you know, I've heard, I mean, I hear of people thinking about that in both ways. I mean, I do find um, as I've gotten older and speaking to, you know, older millennials, especially there, after a certain amount of dating, (laughs) um, it becomes just like less interesting like, you know, when you're one year into it, it's like fun and new. When you're like 10 years into it, it it's like much less new and exciting. Um, Amy Schumer has that great bit where she's like, you just find
2: someone at the bar who looks tired. You take their hand and you go, you're coming home with me. And she's like, walked <laughs> off the stage. My <laughs> first
0: date ended up in an emergency room and where I watched somebody die. Um And I don't know anybody who has a more horrifying first date story than I do. Um, I don't want that kind of excitement. Absolutely not. (laughs) I I got married when I was 22 and have been married ever since. (laughs) Dating has no. Well, there you go, guys. Um, (laughs) All right, there. We are going to. Yeah, I've never watched anybody die before. Um, uh, uh, We are going to leave it there. Um, on that note of dramatic tension. Um, and uh, uh, Christine Emba, you're a great American. I'm very excited to read this book. Uh, and, um, and, uh, uh, which among other things is a courageous project to take on. And uh, I think it's pretty cool and I'm glad you did it. And uh, we will not keep you further from your deadline. Um yeah,
3: no, well, I, I actually secret, not a secret since I'm telling all of you, I am doing this on my laptop from my office, and I have also been able to send a few slacks, and I think I'm in a safe place now. <laughs> well, what happens when you open the laptop though? Um, I don't have that problem. <laughs> okay. Uh, <just> a second. <laughs> and the laptop has been open this whole time. So you All know. right, so we're good. Um, but I guess one thing that I will say, you know, really quickly first, as I put in the chat. Rethinking Sex, A Provocation, um, please check it out. And also I think a number of people have said to me, especially that like it's it's one that makes it easier to start a conversation I think with people, um, including your own kids, if you're interested in that. you might It might be alarming to read for parents on some levels, but it also is a real starting point to start from. And I do want it to start a conversation, um, but Where was I going with this? I was going somewhere with this, I promise. Yeah, I mean, I guess just that. I think that, you know, the point of this is to be a provocation, not to make people upset or angry. And it is a provocation, not a prescription. You know, this is kind of like my idea um, for what sex could look like and for what I think the conversation might be missing. And like the best possible outcome would be for other people to add their own so that we can move the conversation forward. And as for being brave to write a book about sex, you know, this is how editors get you because no experienced person who's written a book before would take on this concept. But I guess like me, like never written a book before when I was like, oh, I'll just like write about sex. I'll like fix sex. My editor was like, yes. I, I don't
0: Go think it is brave. It. To write a book about sex. <laughs> I think it is brave to write a countercurrent current uh, book about sex.
3: It's a choice. Um, I it's, guess. Uh, I mean.
0: And and it's <laughs> a uh, the number of times you've said had to say you know cancel me now um, uh, in this conversation is is a reflection <laughs> of that. And I think it's I think it's. Uh, it's excellent, and, uh, and it's, a f- you know, the best projects are like that. Uh, and so thank you for joining us. We are going yes. to be back, I think, on Friday. We'll be back on Friday, but I think we may be back with a, uh, a, a gentleman who uh, burned his Russian passport um, uh, in public. Working on that. Um, And uh, 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 that'll be in any event uh, uh, 46 hours and 55 minutes from now. Until then, Luke.
2: We don't have fun anymore, but in lieu of fun, we have conversations instead of cancellations. (laughs)
0: Yes, (laughs) and we.